Welcome to the show. In this one, I talk with Alicia Badirksen, the oldest daughter of fundamentalist Robert Hale, better known as Papa Pilgrim. In 2001, the Hale family, consisting of Papa Pilgrim, his wife, and 15 kids, moved from the Rocky Mountains of New Mexico to a homestead in the Wrangell-St. Elias National Park and Preserve in Alaska, the largest area managed by the National Park Service, with over 13 million acres of land. In that park, and on that homestead, Papa Pilgrim inflicted sadistic physical, mental, and sexual abuse onto his family. Elisheba, the oldest of the 15 siblings, endured the brunt of that abuse, to the point where he was planning on starting another family in the woods, with Elisheba as his wife. He was gathering scripture so that he could biblically justify the decision. That's when Elisheba, at 29 years old, decided to escape on a snow machine. This podcast is made possible through the generous support of the Crude Magazine Patreon subscribers. If you already subscribed to the Crude Magazine Patreon, thank you. For those listeners who aren't, please consider subscribing at patreon.com slash crude magazine. That's patreon.com slash crude magazine. And pick the subscription tier that works for you. I want to thank everyone subscribed at the Company Man tier. These are the people who have subscribed to the Crude Patreon for $50 or more. Trina Duber, Seward Brewing Company, The Grind Coffee Shop in Juneau, Derek Adolph, Blue and Gold Board Shop, Sharon Liska, Alaska Surf Adventure, Aquila Space, and Northern Knives. Thank you to all the Patreon subscribers. Your money and your support make these conversations possible. You can also support this podcast with a one-time payment at buymeacoffee.com slash crude magazine. That's buymeacoffee.com slash crude magazine. And if you have a chance to rate or review Crude Conversations on Apple Podcasts, please do. Also, you can now get crude apparel and merchandise at TeePublic. From t-shirts to hoodies to stickers and even baby onesies. Just go to the Crude Instagram and click the link in the bio. Okay, back to Alicia Badirksen. The decision to tell her story wasn't an easy one. At first, it felt like she was betraying her family by telling all their secrets, because that's what Papa Pilgrim had brought her up to believe. More often than not, she believed that by taking her father's abuse, she was sparing her mother and her siblings from abuse. It was her job to make him happy, and if she didn't do that, then her father would set his sights on others. All that pain would be detailed in a book called Out of the Wilderness, but it would take 11 years before she felt comfortable enough to share her story publicly. Now she believes in the positive repercussions of telling her story. That pain is a gift. It's a bridge. It's something that helps us understand one another, and it opens a door for relationships and for forgiveness. And forgiveness? Well, that's letting go of the debt that that person owes you. So here she is, Alicia Badirksen. <laughs> this red light right here, it means we're recording. Okay, fired up. 
crude conversations. Listen more than you talk. Go to work. So before we get into the details of your book, would you mind explaining what your life looks like right now? Absolutely. So I spend a lot of my time right now, since I just became the author of Out of the Wilderness, going from just simply being a mom and loving on my kids. I'm a homeschooling mother. Um, my son has uh, special needs and just had a massive stroke uh, about two and a half years ago now. And so I spent a lot of my time actually training a service dog for him. She's been an awesome part of the family. Mm -hmm. And my 13-year-old daughter who, wow, she's just so into everything. She loves music, everything from playing the piano to violin, climbing the mountains with youth group and <laughs> horseback riding. Yeah. So definitely my life is, but I'm also a very involved person with um, both my husband and I. I personally have a, a deep passion for people and journeying alongside them in their own journeys. So I'm very involved with my community or anyone who needs to sit down and talk about their life or whether it's a childhood trauma or whether it's today and something um, difficult that they're going through, um, grieving the loss of someone who died or just being able to get to the heart. Um, all stem from everything I've been through in my life mm -hmm. and coming out of that. So I love that. I love one-on-one -on -one time with people, mentoring. But I also work with missions like Hearts Going Towards Wellness and um, working in groups with people who are um, coming out of the villages and trying to face their own stories. And now that I've become an author with Out of the Wilderness, I have been called to do lots of speaking engagements, book signings, and um, that's been a whole new world, reaching out to the world, actually, beyond, you know, just my community mm -hmm. and our home. Our home is always full of people. It's a We're very hospitable with lots of people inside of our home. So, yeah, that's life right now. And how does that feel to be in a position now, you know, with the book to be reaching out to people publicly? Well, actually, that's a big question, Cody, because for years, it's been 17 years now since I escaped my father deep into the Wrangell Mountains of Alaska. Mm -hmm. And when I was 29 years old, didn't know anybody or didn't know how to talk to anyone. I had been isolated in the wilderness all my life to where now <clears throat> all these years I wasn't ready for my story to go public, even though it went public as everyone knows, or a lot of people have heard of Papa Pilgrim and um, the fight between, you know, the pilgrims and the park service. Uh, and then how it all ended with him going to jail because of his horrible abuse to his oldest daughter, which is me. Mm -hmm. And so um, those are kind of things that 
a person doesn't really want to talk about being raped by their own father and talking about that horrible life. But that started 11 years ago when I began to write a book and open the door for all the memories to come flooding in. And I knew then I had someone help me out. Actually, someone from Australia had come over um, named Jeff Richardson, and he really was determined to help me get my book written. thought I should get the story out there. Many people had asked me, you know, you should get your story out there. But I wasn't ready. Mm -hmm. So I would have to say, to answer that question, I wasn't ready till uh, January of 2022. <laughs> Here we sit. And I was finally ready to go public. But I had a friend even ask me, or a few friends, ask me, are you really ready for this? Are you really ready for your whole community and everybody who knows you and everybody who don't know you to hear of this really hard story that you've been through? Has that reaction been different than you expected or is it about what you expected? Actually, I would have to say I've been quite blown away with the responses to the book and how quickly it went public. Um, yeah, I've had radio um, stations and Anchorage Daily News, book reports, um, everywhere from Anchorage to Copper River Valley, just, just interviewing me, mm -hmm. Channel 2. And that's just in the public, but um, there's been so many people who have heard about my book, who have read my book, and the responses have been just absolutely blowing me away. So I have to say I wasn't expecting it. I was hoping my desire and my passion was for it to really go out into the world. I wanted it to go beyond even Alaska. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, it has blown me away, actually. Um, both Mike Yorkie, the man who helped me with the book, and I i think it's been quite amazing how many people have just come and said, you know, this is a page turner. Uh, they all say it's really hard to read as far as, you know, the story, but um, it brings out a lot of hope and redemption and courage. So many people have been like, sending me personal messages one way or another who have been like, I'm ready to walk away from abuse and I'm ready to, to face it or I want to forgive. It's just been awesome. Yeah. What's it like hearing those stories or reading those stories? Well, it's just, um, I think the word, uh, what comes to my mind is it's worth it. It felt so worth it walking through my story and walking through the hard stuff and coming out the other side ready to share it with others because I shared it for the sake of others and it just is really encouraging mm -hmm. in fact I've been in tears a few times just um, seeing little kids and families make a stand against you know cults and things that are really just so damaging Mm -hmm. 
Yeah. I would imagine recalling so many traumatic memories in this book was really difficult. Did you find any part of the book harder to write than others? Absolutely. Um, the hardest part to write was the day my father took me out into the wilderness and crossed over a line that he had been grooming me for years as a little girl and as a baby, actually, to, to be his sex slave. But at this point, he had become outraged against the whole family and told me that I was to take my mother's place and now that I was a young woman and stay right beside him. And then he drove way out into the wilderness and found this old uh, water trough that belonged to cattle and had me fill it up with water from the stream and build a fire underneath it and make him a bath which is something that I grew up doing, bathing with my father, sleeping with my father. But now something had changed because in the mix of his anger and spiritual abuse, uh, he was telling me that God had created me for this and that this was the day and it come. And that he had visions and dreams from God and that he had been preparing me for all these years and now he's like coming forth and confessing about all the times he had seen my little naked body and how much it had given him pleasure. And now it was time for him to go all the way. And I didn't know anything else but what my father had taught me. I knew that he beat us up and I had spent days and weeks and months in uh, being beat and starved and working and serving the family because I had sexual struggles within my growing little young lady heart and thinking I had to confess everything to my father or I'd go to hell. Mm -hmm. And so now he's, he's telling me that, that this is something he's supposed to do. And so, yeah, that was writing that story and trying to figure out how to put it into words for the world to see mm -hmm. because I wouldn't be able to write it down as bad as it really was. And so I, I wrote the whole thing down completely and had to call my counselor while I was in a fetal position, weeping and crying and trying not to go backwards, but move forward. <laughs> mm -hmm. But it was very freeing and knowing that I was actually not that person my father told me I was. I was actually uh, the opposite. Yeah. But, um, yeah. Do you know what his understanding or interpretation of the Bible was? Was it a book of allegory or a book of strict laws? Or did he kind of tailor it to his own desires? Well... I can only speak of what I experienced and what I heard and um, perceived as I was a little girl born to his um, teachings. Uh, well, I was actually three, three years old when he got religion. Mm -hmm. And the, the Bible was, uh, I would have to say for me, it was a rule book and 
when I woke up in the morning and crawled out of the little tiny cabin bed on the floor, you know, piled in with my brothers, I would look up and he was sitting on the little adobe ledge with the open fire pit in front of him and my mom would be leaning over like cooking his coffee. And I knew the first thing I had to do was go crawl on Papa's lap and give him a kiss on the lip and say good morning or I was in big trouble. And I'm talking, you know, four, five, six years old. Um, and he had our bucket, actually honey bucket, porta potty, whatever you want to call it, right in the middle of the room because we weren't allowed to like even see our own naked body. Like we weren't allowed to do that. We had to get dressed and, and use the bathroom where we were being watched. And so I would, you know, say good morning, go to the bathroom right behind my father. And then if I lingered very long, I was questioned and needed to get right back into his lap. And hours would just go by with him with preaching the Bible. And I remember one time he told us kids, my brothers and I were just really little, that we needed to get a white feed sack from the barn and put all our dolls and um, all our toys into it because they're, we're worshiping idols and that these were idols and we're supposed to worship God and not uh, an idol. And it was just so confusing because in my own heart, I was like, I am so evil. How could I be so wicked? I'm, I'm worshiping my baby doll, little Betty. That was all I had. Yeah. Um, and just driving in the old 41 Chevy truck down to the down the mountain to the local dump and watching that feed sack just tumble down into the trash and crying tears. But my tears were sort of this mix of I'm I'm evil person. I'm just so evil. And oh no, now I don't get to cuddle Betty anymore. I don't get to play Dolly anymore. I'm actually what am I going to do without my little dolly and feeling horrible for even having that thought at six years old? <laughs> was that the end of the toys for you and your siblings? Yep. We weren't allowed to have toys. Only thing that we were allowed to have were things that were practical, like bikes. For some reason, we were allowed to have bikes and we would haul things and pull things all over the place with our bikes and wagons um, so, I mean, it was very difficult figuring out if we ever did get to play. We worked very hard. Mm -hmm. Um, he would send us out of the house to work and we, we had a lot of chores. We were surviving in the mountains. So in the first part of my life, or actually most of my life was in the Rocky Mountains of New Mexico at 9,000 feet before we moved to Alaska in 2000. Can you tell me about your time in New Mexico? Yeah. So the mountain in the mountains of New Mexico, we're really far away from people. And um, we moved there when I was three years old. So I barely remember the moving in. Mm -hmm. But um, my father got religion. He started out as hippie. He met my mom. He was 33 years old. My mom was 16. Actually, she had me at 17 way out in the middle of the deserts of uh, 
California, um, Apple Valley, and then, yeah, he was sleeping around with women and my mom and molesting little girls, and then I came along, and and then he got religion when I was three years old and moved to the Rocky Mountains of New Mexico, where we lived on uh, Jack Nicholson property. He's a movie actor. Mm-hmm. That's a whole story in itself. You can read it in my book, Out of the Wilderness. <laughs> yeah. Um, but but life for me as a little girl was surviving in the mountains. Um, and over time, we gathered in milk cow and we had horses. We actually landed there with horses, but sheep. And um, I became a shepherd with sheep. But we lived off of our animals and the land, and we worked very hard every day. How would you describe your relationship with religion when you were young? So, like, when I was really little, there was a, a, a conflicting thing going off in my mind all the time. On one hand, the God that was being preached to me was a God that was going to throw me into hell if I didn't do everything exactly like Papa said. And when I didn't do it right, he had to beat the devil out of me or I wouldn't make it. I would have to pay the price later. Mm-hmm. And so there was this religious um, every day from the time I woke up out of the bed to the time I went to bed feeling really guilty because I couldn't have a pure thought all day long. And um, I would do everything I could to try to please Papa, and it never was enough. Then there was this other side where I would find myself, for an example, he I was seven years old, I was in the attic of my little our little cabin. For days on end, he had me laying there not moving, and other than getting up and using a bucket he had sitting there. Um, and all throughout the day, he would come up the front of that cabin, and I could hear it creaking, and just the, the fear that would go through my little seven-year-old body, knowing he was coming up there to whip me. And just the sting of that whip, and watching his face as my, the louder I cried, the harder he whipped me, and um, I would lay down and just cry out for God to do something mm-hmm. like how could Papa love me and do this to me so the conflicting thing in my brain was this God that I had to live up to that was being preached at was not the actually Jesus that was showing up for my little girl's heart because and hearing the, the the child's voice that was crying out because previous times to that time in the attic for an example I thought he had killed my cat Weeks had gone by, and I'm begging for him to send me an angel, Mm -hmm. bring me comfort, and she comes crawling into bed with me. And just in little ways like that, where there was this conflicting thing going on in my little mind, that I knew that Jesus was compassionate and loving. At the same time, God was just so evil, I mean, so not evil, but... Like, that's all he wanted to give me was evil. That sounds weird, I know. (laughs) 
you know, I, I, I keep having like this rotation of different questions in my head, but the one that I keep coming back to is what's your relationship with religion now? Yeah. So I have gone from religion to relationship where religion gives you all these do's and don'ts and live up and today I believe I am a Christian and I really believe in God. In fact, I've come to realize that without him there protecting me all those years, I wouldn't be where I'm at now today. And so I'm very involved in the church. I'm very involved with with showing my children Jesus, the Jesus that showed up for kids that invited them to come into his lap and hold them in his lap when the adults said you know no 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 no, don't leave him you leave him alone you know he's the master mm -hmm. and he was like are you kidding let him come over here i'm using my own words but like yeah he's such a god of relationship and um when everybody and all the pharisees and everybody's trying to like test him and come up with all these laws he always spoke out of um, gentleness and even what but but to the people who were like like my father just want to abuse religion and abuse people with it he would give them answer, uh, ask them questions that would leave them walking away because they couldn't even give an answer so like even I just picture this is the God who actually showed up for me and actually, even as a child, I had this dream that I didn't, it's crazy that I'm going to tell you this like publicly and, and I've written it in my book, Out of the Wilderness. Mm -hmm. But um, like, seriously, I thought this was something I would cherish in my heart and no one would ever find out <laughs> because anything good that I shared with my father would, or my mother, because she would make me tell my father, would be this. It would be stomped on and it would be ruined. Mm -hmm. So I kept this secret to me. But I had this dream once that I I could see myself walking through the yard in the front of our cabin. And, and God was there. But he was so big I couldn't see him. I just had his, a piece of his finger. And I was just like leaping along. I, I, you know how funny how dreams are? You can see yourself yeah. <laughs> from behind. Yeah. And then all of a sudden you're in it and then you're behind again. And I had never felt so safe in my life. I was just like weeping along and I was holding his finger. And it wasn't like I even needed to see this huge God here, but I knew it was God. But then the dream switched and it took me to the shed, the, the dirty old shed full of tools and all the old stuff where I'd be banned to so many times and beat and raped and um, there was Jesus. He was looking at me. I could see his face. I mean, I can't even describe so much how he looked except what I could describe to you was that he loved me so much and that he was there where I was suffering. And it didn't make sense to me as a little girl because I woke up and I was so angry that I woke up. Um, 
So I hung on to that dream kind of as a fantasy over my years. Like, if only that was true. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, and now that's what I experience every day. I wonder if it took some time to arrive at this you know this this place spiritually that you're at right now where it's a relationship you know you have a relationship with god rather than a relationship with religion yeah i'm you're quite intuitive cody <laughs> with all your questions i'm like wow <laughs> yes so you don't just suddenly get away from abuse and run away and and just run right into the arms of God. I can promise you that's it's a miracle. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> that can't just happen. It didn't happen for me at least. In fact, I had a lot of you know well-meaning Christians and people saying, you know, you just need to forgive, put the past behind, move forward. And that didn't work for me actually. Not for me. Mm-hmm. I had so many layers of abuse so many layers of um, trauma and confusion. In fact, (laughs) to be 29 years old and not even have been allowed to look someone else into the eye in their eyes is, is, was mind blowing. And then to find out, you know, I didn't have any education. And so I could barely read because I had forced myself to learn how to read along in the Bible. But pretty much all I could read was a King James Bible. And to have a conversation with someone, I would just get all tongue twisted and and so self-conscious because I didn't know how to talk mm-hmm. or face people. And then, so just coming to the reality, and the more I faced reality, the more angry I got. And I got very revengeful in my heart to the point where (laughs) they say hurt people hurt people the anger was so strong I wanted somebody to hurt I was I was just like um and then and this sort of was happening more after my father went to jail the in, in between the month in between after I escaped and my father went to jail I kind of was living a little fantasy life little honeymoon I was like living with this family who took me in and I didn't really want to face it all but inside it was stirring like a evil pot and I didn't know what to do and how to deal with that reality was getting worse and worse but um once my father went to jail and they all want or they all wanted to talk to me the police and um it's each thing was a, a step towards doing the right thing for an example um, making the decision to actually go tell the truth and tell the authorities um, what really had been going on um, was a big step Mm -hmm. but in the midst of that I wanted to run away and I did run away a few times and my running away was back to my comfort zone back to the woods back to the hard life back to something that would be difficult that was comfort for me and um or comfort zone even though it was terrifying actually can you can you but, tell me about that escaping back to the woods yeah so 
inside, like I said, I was just boiling. Like it was so confusing. And um, the only way I knew how to handle the horrifying pain and trauma inside of me, because now my father was in jail and I was no longer on a chain, almost visible chain. And now I called it the invisible chain. Um, I was still in bondage, such bondage in prison. And so the comfort zone, we all grow up with this comfort zone where that's all we know. And so all I knew was the woods. Um, so I literally take a blanket. And, and this may sound strange. I'd always take my Bible. Mm -hmm. I'd grab a blanket or a coat and I would just take off running into the woods as far out. I was wanting to get as lost as I could get lost. Even though it was hard for me to get lost. I was a wilderness girl. Yeah. <laughs> but um, I knew how to hide. Um, my father taught me well. And so like... I didn't want anyone to find me and there was many different times I was I would take off and this one time I was up underneath a tree trunk trying to get out of the rain and I was just tucked way up underneath that tree trunk all mixed into the dirt and the mosquitoes and um, I had my little Bible all curled up inside of me up, underneath that thing and I was ready to die I was actually begging God let me die just let me die and then moments later I hear a bear come holfing by I don't know if you remember if you know what a bear sounds like yeah I do they're kind of like that when they're just quietly walking through the woods they kind of have this little oh, oh it has a noise and all of a sudden the second later one second I'm begging God to help me let me die and a second later, I'm like, oh, God, save my life. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's like reality would hit. And like, you know, all of a sudden you're faced with death. You're begging to live. And so my mind was confused, if that makes sense, is what I'm trying to say. Yeah. And you're 29 at this point, right? Well, yeah, now I'm 30. Yeah. Now you're 30. Okay. I'm just trying to come through it all, facing the whole court system and all was just trauma by itself. But like, um, the more I faced it and the more I figured out the truth of what my father really had done and how evil it was, mm -hmm. I just wanted him to pay for it. And I wanted somebody to pay. Like, I was angry. I was angry at my mom. I was very angry at her. I was angry she didn't do anything to save me i was angry at my my brothers i was angry at anybody like that had like somebody somebody's at fault here that's just how i felt and um but what's beautiful too is it was out in those woods <laughs> the mountains um where god met me as well and so it was the last time i ran away i was out there for 10 days actually and hiding out and I had just finally reached a place where I didn't have any reason to keep living I didn't feel like there was a reason or a purpose for me on this earth and the enemy the lies that I'd heard all my life were just so real and so true like mm -hmm. it was like this has got to be true 
I had heard that I was created for one thing and that thing only, and that was to be my father's sex slave and um, to satisfy him, and that if I left him, he would die, and I had no other purpose on earth, and that uh, I was ugly and no man could ever love me, and God would throw me into hell if I walked away from my father. And all those things just started feeling like it was for sure true. And I just decided one time on the mountainside after 10 days out there. And actually there were some things that led up to it, which I wrote in my book. But um, it just, someone had finally came and found me. And this family that I was living with sent me a letter explaining that my actions were were leading me in a direction of uh, that wasn't very healthy for the rest of the family and that I was going to need to move out. And something about that just broke me. I came to, <laughs> I just reached rock bottom mm -hmm. because that's what I had experienced all my life. When I reached a point of when I was in trouble, I was rejected and sent out of the house and I was a servant of the family. And so in my mind, in my heart, it all just hit. Like, I've lost even if there was any hope. Um, and then another layer into that was my husband now, Matthew, had moved in with the rest of the family. <laughs> there were so many of us. As I, I probably haven't mentioned yet, I'm the oldest of 15 siblings. So we were all living together with a family of uh, they had nine kids, so we were a huge family now. Two of my brothers, um, at this point, uh, I think they were married. I mean, very quickly they had married two of the daughters. And so, like, we're one huge family. And Matthew, he was just a stray in the area. <laughs> he had known the family and... They're like more the merrier. You might as well move in with all these boys, these young men. And I had grown to wonder if I liked him. And he had looked at me a few times and tried to get me to smile and uplift my spirit. Even though I didn't know if he liked me, I just felt like there's no way I could be loved by anyone. And... So they just added a whole nother level to it all for me. So yeah, it was out on that mountainside that I also met my true God who I just looked up for the first time in years and said, can you take me? I mean, I have no hope left. It was nothing but destruction in my mind. Mm -hmm. And... I experienced relationship that day. I experienced an acceptance from God. And um, I realized that I didn't have to be anything good. I didn't have to make myself anything better. And that I could be me and be loved. And it was okay. And I actually received it that day. Mm -hmm. Considering your background and your upbringing... How do you help people reach an understanding of their traumatic experiences in those programs that you're involved in? Well, first of all, 
whether it's in a program or this just one-on-one -on -one with people. I think the first step is them seeing that I recognize their story matters. And to be believed and heard and have a safe place to share and know that you're going to be loved. Well, they might not. Most people don't know it. I mean, to be vulnerable is one of the most scariest things. But to show them when they're vulnerable that they are fully loved and not try to fix or bring up all the answers, but to be right there and say what you've been through is, you know, worth hearing and it's also worth, um, you're worth loving mm -hmm. and to speak truth into their hearts and, um, and then, so I think, for an example, I just did a speaking engagement not too long ago. I flew down to Nebraska, but I shared how I did different um, topics. And starting out with your story matters. And why? Why do we look at our story? Why do we uncover the layers? And for me, that was uncovering the layers and recognizing how um, how loved I am and what the truth is, separating where I was harmed and looking at how it's more important what happens inside of me than what happens to me because I can go all day long and for the rest of my life being angry at what's happened to me and then I'll be, you know, go, turning and hurting someone else just because I'm angry. Mm -hmm. So how I respond to the trauma is what makes a big difference. So um, being able to accept, just like on that mountainside, that you know my evil past was evil, and even in the evil past, I did evil, but I can be forgiven and loved by that, still loved by God and others. And then. Um, I think a lot of times I love to share just the journey of forgiveness and how that, what that was like for me. And for me, that was, that was one step at a time. I call it a journey because it is a journey. <laughs> mm -hmm. But it, the first part of it was on the mountainside, receiving that I was worth being loved and I can be forgiven. And then wor working through the layers and understanding what was shame that I all the shame I owned that wasn't even mine to own and giving it back where it belongs. And then um, walking into the courtroom, trying to forgive my father. I say trying because that's what I was doing. I had reached the point where I was ready to like, oh, I guess I am ready. I didn't think I would ever be able to see him mm -hmm. or see his face again. And I chose to walk into the courtroom and do that. But that day I walked out so devastated because I had actually gone in my life depending upon the fact that he would say he's sorry. And because he didn't say he was sorry, you know, I was devastated. So realizing that, you know, well, true forgiveness would completely forgive whether that person without demand or expectation. Mm -hmm. But for me, it was 
I had demand. I wanted him to say he was sorry. I had expectation. And so I was devastated. So when you were testifying, were you looking at your dad? Yeah. So at that point, court system takes so long. So like, um, I had already been married and my husband, Matthew sat beside me and held my hand, my shaking hand. And I read out, um, a nine page typed out letter that I had, I learned to type. Mm-hmm. And so I typed it out and just naming the wrong and, and, and actually saying it because I'd never been able to say it in front of my father without being beat up. And, and even then I didn't want to say too many like details about being raped or the horrible stuff because there was my little siblings in the room and didn't want anybody to be hurt by it. But I got up in front of my father and I actually looked at him and I looked up a few times and I was scared to death because he could completely control me with his eyes. His language spoke through his, his eyes. Okay. I mean, he could tell me when he was lusting after me. He could tell me when he was angry with me. He could tell me when he wa- he thought I was going to hell. He could tell me when God, I mean, just totally through his eyes. And he did that that day. But I was able to look at him. I was able to tell him I forgave him with all this like expectation and longing that he would say something mm-hmm. that he would say he was sorry. What look was he giving you? It was a look of such disgust. He was so disgusted in me. Before that, had you talked about the abuse to anyone? Well, yes, I had. Um, A month after I had escaped, I got word that the police wanted to talk to me because my father had a run-in with one of my brothers who called the police. And all of a sudden, I was faced with my past. Mm. And... I wasn't, I, I, like I said, I thought I was just going to like let him know that it, things weren't good and things weren't right. And I just needed a place and his family took me in and I was sort of living the life. My things boiled inside and all of a sudden I was faced with it with a decision. So this family, the Buckingham family had talked to me about what if it's okay for you to, they were like encouraging me towards that it would actually save my family. And since I had hung my hat all my life on what I do, what my job was to do was to make Papa happy so that he wouldn't be angry with the family. Even when he yelled at mom when I was a little girl, I thought it was my fault because he told me it was my job to keep him happy. And so I could hang my hat on the fact that if I went and told the police the truth that I could save my family, but I had never told anyone. So that's when I went to Mrs. Buckingham and I told her, well, can I talk to you? And she's like, absolutely. I've been waiting. (laughs) Mm -hmm. So we sat on this porch and it took all day and my hair was hanging down. I couldn't look her in the eye. I was, I was I had one focus and that was to get every awful secret out of my heart I could get out and dump it out and then I would run away. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I told her when I was done I'm like I got to go now. I 
I'm just going to pollute your family. I got to get out of here. She said, look at me, sweetie. Can you look at me? And I just looked up at her and she just had this most, you talk about eyes. Her eyes spoke nothing but love. And she just said, I love you more now than I did when you first came here. Mm -hmm. And, um, so that was the first time. And then, you know, I walked into this little room where a police officer sat there and once again, I dumped it out. It all came out while he just sat there and stared. He didn't even know what to ask me or say. And I walked out of that little courtroom. I don't know how many hours. And then the third time was in front of a grand jury where I was being questioned by the DAA. And um, they were asking me really hard questions. And I just remember looking out into the room and there was like, I don't know, like, I think there was like 18 people, 17, 18, however many people are in a jury, a big group of people, mm -hmm. men and women crying. And, you know, so fast forward, I walk into life now and hey, you're going to hang on. My my son's waking up. I have to get daddy. I'm sorry. That's okay. <laughs> oh, he's okay. He's home. Michael, Papa's home. I'm gonna go downstairs and see Papa. <laughs> he's all cuddled in with his service dog here. <laughs> um. So fast forward. After all those very sensitive moments of sharing my story. Or basically, I think I would have to say telling my story. Like, it wasn't like, um, it was a traumatic, let this out, confess it, is how I was thinking of it. Um, I decided, when I sat down, to write a book. And the book, just like, because I couldn't write very well. I love the new, these days, technology, I could literally dictate into my phone and I would get up really early and I would dictate these memories and they just started coming like floods mm -hmm. and the more I healed the more they came and the more I remembered the more <laughs> the more the memories would come and it was just crazy and so this missionary man from Australia was helping me write it all down and uh, he was ready to publish it within like two months and I put my <laughs> brakes on. I said, no, I can't do this. I still wasn't ready. And so I, that's when I started walking into groups and allowing myself to open my story up to people in a safe place and be reclothed and hear the truth about who I am. Because I really was, I had really believed lies about myself so damaging mm -hmm. and then I've gone from can't talk about my story to you could ask me any question I wouldn't be afraid to talk about back on that porch the first time you told your story what did that feel like well I was so ashamed so ashamed of myself like sharing about those things 
I pretty much felt like I just made a huge confession. Did you feel like maybe you were betraying your family? Oh yeah. Solid, solid betrayal. Okay. Because like, okay. So then after I shared that, Mrs. Buckingham asked me, um, to share a certain piece of it with Mr. Buckingham because he was a Colonel or he worked in the, in the army and he had, if he knew of crime, you know, he had to report it. Mm -hmm. And she's like, he needs to hear this. It was just one part where, um, my father had beat me all day long. It was just one time of my story. It happened many times, but he had, um, held me captive in this, tiny little building um, and he had beat me and beat me and and his thing was he would beat me and then have a sexual drive over me and it would just it just kept going and kept going for like 24 hours and she wanted me to share a piece of that with Mr. Buckingham and I just remember him looking over at her and said what she's been raped by her father and I could tell by the way he said it that this was really a big deal. And then they turned to me and asked me if I was willing to share this with the with the law because they wanted to to hear. They were asking, and I just looked at them and I said, "Oh no, I can't do that." And they're like, "Why?" <laughs> and I'm like, "Um, yeah, that would." that would tear my family apart and um i have to do everything i can to protect them and then what do you mean protect them from what <laughs> i'm like well you know if they get taken away if my younger siblings and everybody get taken away by the ocs or or anybody they'll be um they'll end up going to hell i mean they'll be taught the wrong ways they won't be taught it, it, it's it's and not only that, like the Bible tells us that we can lie about our family and um, so that people won't hurt them. And they're like, what? Like, what are you talking about? What does the Bible say? And I'm like, well, you know, there was Rahab. She lied. And there's um, uh, Jacob. And there's, there's things that happen like, you know, our father said that you're never supposed to speak about things done in secret like the shameful things done in secret and what the world would call this shame <laughs> and there was like other things like my father had told me like the story of noah he had three young he had three sons and one of them had walked in on him while he was drunk and naked and he went out and told his brothers and then his father cursed him and the bible is so full of really really actually horrible stories mm -hmm. and just yeah. because it's in the bible doesn't mean it's bible doesn't mean that okay god condones you know the father cursing his son but that's not how we were taught it was bible and if i told then i would be cursed mm -hmm. so i'm sitting there telling her this and she's like do you realize that the story of jacob he lied to his father he got the birthright and God ended up blessing him with, you know, becoming the father of the 12 tribes of Israel. But the rest of his life, he lived reaping nothing but lies. His own father-in-law, 
He had worked seven years for his daughter, and on the wedding night, his father-in-law brought the wrong daughter on purpose and gave him Leah instead of Jacob, I mean, instead of Rachel. Totally lied to him. And then his own wife, who he loved, lied, and he lost her in childbirth over it. Then his own sons lied, and he almost went to the grave weeping and crying over, you know, the loss of his family members because they had lied about Joseph. And um, and I'm sitting there looking at her going, whoa, I've never heard that side of the Bible. Mm -hmm. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. In some way, did you think you would be going back out there? You know, after you had escaped and you're telling your story of abuse and you're afraid that you're betraying your family because you didn't want to, you know, I guess tell their secrets. Was that because maybe in some way you thought you were going back? No, I was never going back. Okay. When I, when I left, I was leaving forever. Actually, when I escaped... I was going to go to the wilderness and die there. Um, I knew I could never see my father again. And even my brothers had tried to tell me that you don't have to be afraid of anything now. That was about three weeks afterwards I left. And he's like, you left and you're, you're out of his, you know, you don't have to worry about what you're worried about. And I just kept looking at them saying, you guys do not understand. And... I knew they didn't understand. They'd never heard my story. They didn't know really what had happened behind the scenes. Mm -hmm. I mean, everybody saw my father beat me up all the time, but that wasn't, um, that was normal for all of us. So I, uh, I knew though, and this is emba almost embarrassing, but not anymore. It used to be very embarrassing to say, but I knew that if I got in his presence again, I would completely walk off with him. There was no way I could get away. What do you mean by that? Walk off with him? Like he, if I was, if my father was to find me out in the woods, he would tower over me and I would literally go with him. My brain was that messed up. I, it's, it's really hard to explain to anyone. And, and that's one of the reasons why I wrote my book because um, there are so many women and men actually who are being sex trafficked and People don't understand why, why didn't they get away? Like there's times they would take them into the store with them or they'll go into public. What keeps them from actually walking away? Mm -hmm. And there's such a mind control. Um, and, and really, I try to describe it a little bit when I'm out on the mountain, you know, and my mind is thinking everything he's told me is true. There is no reason to live or go forward. And so it took so much to break past that and find out that I'm actually worth living and I'm actually worth loving. And um, does that make sense? Absolutely. Yeah. Okay. You know, I, I, um, I have this question written down and I, I keep looking at it and, you know, I hope it's not offensive um, I don't think it will be, but 
Oh, no, it's fine. You know, during during that time, do you feel like in some way you still loved your dad? You mean during being sexually abused? Yeah. By my father? And even even maybe afterwards? Um, so all those years, I, I thought that I loved my father. Mm-hmm. I thought that was why I did what I did was for my father and my family. Um, well, especially when I was a little girl. When I got older, I toiled a lot in my mind, in my heart, with how much I hated him. But what's so confusing, the best thing to do is just tell you a story, but to, put, to make it alive. Yeah. Um, the, day I, the day I escaped... So let me back up a little bit. When when a person, this isn't just me, any anyone I'm going to say, when a person has their body has been stolen by someone completely over, like there's no way um, I, I didn't have a choice. And yet, once that's happened, it's like that's all you're made for. And there is no other hope. And so that became my only tool to try to save my family. That sounds so strange, but he was a tyrant. And if I could possibly tame him, I would try, but it didn't ever work. Um, And yet it did work in my mind to keep him from harming others. I would get the blunt of it. And yet, I would have to say, because I was born into it, um, it was all I knew. And so the day I escaped, my father never let me out of his sight unless he knew exactly where I was and I was in the wilderness, basically. And he was going to go down the mountain. This is way out in the Wrangell Mountains of Alaska, and there's this, we're up a valley where... You have to go 14 miles, river crossing, and in the winter time, it's deep, deep snow, avalanches on both sides. No way you can get out unless you have, like, the ability to realize you might <laughs> get tumbled down in an avalanche. Yeah. Um, and so, like, I'm on the snow machine. I mean, I'm sorry, my brain just <laughs> flipped. <laughs> my father said he was going to go down the mountain that day. Um to the end of the trail and get some fuel and he was taking a couple of the brothers well because of my older brothers had they had given up they left they couldn't convince there was a lot of things that happened it's all in my book he left us with all these kind of with all kinds of commands what we're supposed to be doing and where we're all supposed to be and who should talk and who shouldn't talk and I was supposed to saw all this lumber, and um, that morning, he asked me to pray before he left. And that's because he knew that I couldn't lie to God. He would ask me to pray to, to find out what was going on in my mind sometimes. And I just prayed that God would show me what it means to love him more than my father and my family. Mm-hmm. And he stormed out the room. He had a cup of coffee in his hand. 
and yeah this is kind of embarrassing to say oh well it's it's kind of hard to explain but um he jumped on a snow machine he has a cup of coffee in his hand and there was like um, he had the fanciest snow machine of all of us so he had this really fancy snow machine and it had a a mirror on it and i knew that i was going to leave i knew i was going to escape as soon as he was out of sight and so i literally ran after him to tell him goodbye and he went as fast as he could to get away from me and that was his way of showing rejection um, which he had played that game all my life but it was like this devastating moment that i couldn't actually tell him goodbye forever and where did you go how did you escape yeah <laughs> well um obviously he had caught wind somehow and sabotaged the rest of the machines that were there before he left unbeknownst to me and, and the rest of us mm. and so it was a pretty narrow escape as i I was heading to the wilderness and then my sister asked if she could come with me, my 16 year old sister. At any time a sibling wanted to be there, see I had to like suddenly be this caretaker because that's what I did, the oldest sister of 15 brothers and sisters. But I didn't have time to argue with her or make any decisions. I'm like, okay, you can come with me, but I'm going to the wilderness and I'm going to survive there. If you think you want to do that that's just fine and she's like no <laughs> I've talked to the brothers which I didn't even know they could talk to him because our father took down all the towers and everything so we couldn't talk to anyone and she had this rendezvous made up with them down in the little town of McCarthy and so basically I gave in and said okay but we got to get out of here right now and in the escape we ended up getting the snow machine going and got down onto the riverbed where the snow machine falls apart and I'm literally so desperate I'm trying to sew it together with like baling wire and she runs back and gets another snow machine going with my other sister and um, who was helping so it's just this one event after another where all the way down this trail I'm thinking God is against me I'm sinning greatly and I'm leaving my father. This must be wrong and nothing's working. And then, you know, we finally got this other little tundra thing going, loaded up my sleeping bag and white sheets and rice and beans and all that onto it and head out again. And I knew that there was another snow machine halfway down the mountain where we had previously left it there because it had ran out of gas. Mm -hmm. but my father had voiced that he was going to fill it up with gas on the way down that's just what you do when you're out in the bush right you fill everything up because you're going to go get gas yeah so he said he was going to fill it up with gas and i knew that if i could make it to that machine i'd be it was a polaris it was much better but we were running out of time so i told my sister we're going to have to just keep going on this snow machine and we're not going to stop and so we head up this hill and about 20 yards away from the other snow machine it ran out of gas and in that moment I knew God was for me because if we had kept going on that snow machine and ran out of gas anywhere on that trail I'd have been a goner and 
if <laughs> you just can't say the, the ifs enough without going, wow, God was for me because then we unloaded and ran over to the other snow machine and it was full of gas. So, I mean, it was just such a narrow escape as finally, you know, we get off the hill and we get along the riverbank and covered up with white sheets because I knew my father would be there really soon passing us. And we're about halfway down the mountain. And sure enough, here he came like 15 minutes later, 10, 15 minutes. And we were barely there underneath those sheets before he showed up. And he didn't see us. He passed by us and went up the hill. But within 10 minutes, he would know that we were gone. And I didn't know if he would just storm after us. So we headed down that trail going really, really fast, really fast. And ended up making it to McCarthy and didn't find my brother's miss. There was miscommunication about where this rendezvous was. And we ended up underneath a tree for five days. Um, at 20 below zero, just surviving. And I wouldn't move. I was like a wild animal. I knew exactly what to do. I was not going to move from my post. Because I knew my father was zooming everywhere to find me. So, I mean, it's a long story, but... <laughs> Did you eat anything when you were under that tree for five days? So, I we ate... One thing I did grab out of the pantry, and that was some raisins. And this is going to sound funny, some chocolate chips. <laughs> <laughs> but we were, we were, <laughs> yeah, right. So we're literally, but I, I didn't eat really because I just, I laid there and I wondered who I was. I just didn't know if I had made the worst mistake in my life. Mm-hmm. And I just kept hearing those words going through my head over and over again. No one will ever love you. You are ruined, and I'm the only one that loves you, and I told you if you leave me, I will die, and so I'm going to die now. And those things were just going through my head, like, I was laying in my sleeping bag, shivering like a leaf. I mean, I was shivering so hard. Mm-hmm. I was skin and bones. My father had starved me, and my sister was so worried. She's like, are you going to die on me? Are you going to die? She was so worried. But, um, yeah, it was very, very confusing. But I knew one thing, and that's that I had to get away. Mm. Or someone was going to die. My father had actually threatened to take me even further and hide me out in the woods and, and that I would start bearing his kids. So, Like a separate family. Yeah, he he was he was working it up. He had Bible verses and stories and all kinds of things that he was working towards. What do you mean by that? He had Bible verses that he's working towards. Yeah, it's he just had this whole thing wrapped around the fact that I was his virgin and that okay. Um now I was he he could go further than that and he could make me his um personal like wife and I, I I can't even express it. It was so, mm-hmm. it was so beyond like, um, frightening. So he was collecting, um, biblical justifications for, you know, this, this next step that he was trying to make. Yeah. yeah. Okay. And he was always, he was always trying to convince me and my mom and he would make us a part of these conversations. And then he would like, um, 
tried to convince that uh and always i knew the steps i knew how it was how by then i already knew what it looked like and and how close i was coming and so i was constantly imagining what i was going to do if i got pregnant and where i would go and i don't know what it was i think it was that if i had a child that i would run away because i would have to protect the child mm-hmm. and and then the other thing was um i told him that if he did anything like that to my sisters that i would take them and run i just don't know why i didn't I was already a sacrifice. That's the thing. That's how I saw myself. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I feel like I'm just getting into this conversation. I'm just thinking out loud. <laughs> no, no, that, no, that's great. I, uh, I, I think that, you know, in conversations like these, or really in, in any conversation, I always like to just kind of listen and leave enough room for, you know, you to think. Because I think that a lot of things new thoughts, new ideas, um, things like that get stumbled on when, when they're allowed to. Well, and that's part of the healing process. Like anybody who's willing to talk about their story, Mm -hmm. like these are some tips I would share is that for an example, if I was to close myself off to pain in the past and the trauma, then I would become somebody who just wanted to see the silver lining in the sky and um, and ignore when something difficult happens. Or I'm talking to someone else who's going through something difficult. Maybe they just lost their father or their mother or their grandma or, you know, their child and they're weeping and they're, and I'm like, oh, well, you know, they're in a good place now instead of wow, that's a lot of loss and being able to enter in and cry with them and be a part of their pain. I wouldn't be able to do that if I was afraid of pain. Mm-hmm. So um, if my heart is open to that and realize that pain is a gift, pain is a, a bridge. Pain is something that helps us understand another and open a door for relationship. And then also forgiveness um, is something that has allowed me to be set free instead of hanging my life depending on someone saying they're sorry, then I'm able to move on and and be completely free. Mm-hmm. Even if that, that one who's harmed me hasn't done anything to say they're sorry. Um, but I've also realized that forgiveness doesn't mean that you walk back into a relationship with someone who's going to harm you. Mm-hmm. Uh, forgiveness is not about, you know, being in relationship with that person. Forgiveness is really letting go of the debt that that person owes you. But then part of that process is also knowing what the debt is. Mm-hmm. So I can say I can forgive you with this debt, but we have to know the debt. And that's part of uncovering the layers of of the trauma in the past or whatever we're going through. And then um, an even deeper level is what I call redemption, where I have to walk that out every day. But redemption can be as small as a bowl of oatmeal, where as a little girl, I 
would be starving all throughout the day because Papa said, you know, you don't eat until the beasts are fed out in the fields. That's what the Bible says. and Or that's what he said it said. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, we work hard all day and I come in and way in late in the afternoon, maybe after a few whippings because he said we took too long to do this or that. And if I had earned enough to get to eat, Oftentimes it was the oatmeal that my mom had made for us and it was cold and lumpy and and um, I couldn't eat it and it was plain and for some reason my 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 little body would throw it up. I couldn't eat it. He'd make me throw eat my throw up and he'd whip me and there was just something in my brain that shut off oatmeal. Mm -hmm. And then I say, what is redemption? Oh, well, redemption is... I married a man who loves hot cereal and oatmeal for breakfast. And so it's like, am I just going to say, oh, I'm never making you oatmeal for breakfast. <laughs> <laughs> or I can choose it. And actually, I enjoy it now. I actually enjoy eating oatmeal. My brain opened it up because I chose it. Um, or it can be as big as my husband taking me and us going on a honeymoon and going to the mountains, the Rocky Mountains of New Mexico and you know backpacking up there into the mountains where we lived and trying to figure out where we're going to make a camp and the levelest place we could find was the old camp place that we would spend our summers in and shutting down and i'm like i can't do this walking down to the creek and saying oh no i just what am i doing i'm going to ruin my husband now and then turning around and telling him this is actually what's wrong <laughs> that's where my father raped me many times we camped out there and of course he's going to say my husband's like well no we don't need to camp there we'll find somewhere else mm -hmm. but redemption is me saying um actually we need to camp out right there and instead of seeing the evil overcoming evil with good because you can't overcome evil with evil but you can overcome evil with good. And um, yeah, we had a blast. We built new memories. We cooked marshmallows, s'mores. I'd never eaten a s'more, I don't think, on that mountain growing up. You went to the Rocky Mountains of New Mexico for your honeymoon to revisit where, where a lot of that childhood trauma happened? Yes. Why did you do that? Well, it's just part of our honeymoon, but... Because, like I said, it was part of me choosing, wanting to choose redemption. It's like taking these really dark rooms in my life and just slamming all the doors on them and saying, I'm never going there again, but they're still there. Or I can open the doors and sweep them clean and walk into them and literally let the light just shine through it and just say, "We're this isn't even here anymore. It doesn't exist. Mm -hmm. So it's like illuminating the evil and um, running it out of my life. And so um, to me, that's real redemption. And redemption also for me is when evil is completely paid for, like by God himself. And I have a free choice to, to be his child and he's opened his arms for me and I get to be like, um, loved by him because I've chosen that. 
And so I also chose that with my husband to love me and to um, walk with me through in those places. Mm-hmm. Believe me, he went over the bathtubs. And <laughs> there was scripture and he took those scriptures and tore them into pieces and threw them into the woods because it was just blasphemous. Yeah. To him. Blas- blaspheme. When all the abuse was happening, do you remember if your mom said anything about the abuse or if she did, how did she talk about it? So when my father went all the way with the sexual abuse with me in my fighting, I fought a lot. Um, he told me, he said, listen, your mother will be able to tell you if it's in the Bible, if it's wrong. And so I sort of hung my heart and my hat on the fact that she would be able to stand up because she could read. And so I figured that's why she could find things. So I hoped that she would be able to to bring up that this is wrong because I couldn't find it. I couldn't prove it. I couldn't even find it in the Bible. And even though it seemed like it to me, he had told me that I couldn't speak against him because it would be going against um, the Holy Spirit, which couldn't be forgiven me. That was his whole spill. Um, so then when he drew my mother into the whole thing, she said nothing. And years later, we were walking in a store here in Alaska. And her and I were just like just around the corner a little bit, like we were walking down some aisles. Mm-hmm. I came running up beside her and I just said, so Papa told me that you could prove it. You could you could probably show me in the Bible where where it'd be wrong for him to do what he's doing to me. And um, she just looked at me with this most defeated look and said, no, I can't prove it. There's nowhere. I can't prove it. It was really a devastating moment for me because I had somehow hoped, I guess. And um, so that's the most of what she said. And the other thing that she said to me once was that, which gave me sort of this feeling of praise, as she told me that um, in her earlier years of marriage, she got beat up a lot. And now I take the blunt of all that. And she thanked me for that. How did that make you feel? To be honest, it's it's a little uh, crazy to say that it actually made me feel good. Like it made me feel like, whew, at least I've I've done something for my mom. Like I looked for her to praise me some somehow. I wanted to do something to had that I did something to save her. It's it's pretty sick. I'll tell you it's sick when I look back now. But I, um, at the time, I felt a relief and it felt good. Well, it's that idea of sacrificing yourself again. Right. If I was the ultimate sacrifice, at least I wanted it to work. Mm-hmm. I don't say that lightly, but yeah. Yeah. Do you know why your dad started calling himself Papa Pilgrim? Yeah. So, other than the Bible, his favorite book was um, Pilgrim's Progress. Have you heard of Pilgrim's Progress? I have, yeah. 
So um, he would read the Bible and Pilgrim's Progress to us. And uh, him and both both him and his twin brother start calling themselves Pilgrim. Did anyone else in your family have nicknames? Hmm. There was a few. Because my father would go back and forth with the um, referring one over another. And so oftentimes he would have uh, pet names for different ones. But he had a lot of pet names for me. Did you ever think that you were part of a cult? Oh, <laughs> well, people accuse us of being in a cult all the time. And it became one of the most offensive words I would ever hear. In what way was it offensive? Well, because um, there was a lot of accusation from the world. And for me personally, even though my father loved it, he loved accusation. He said that when we were being accused and, and um, persecuted, that was proof of us being a Christian. But embarrassingly enough, for my own heart, I was very... Um, uh, it just, I just felt so hated. I felt hated by the world. I felt hated by my father. I felt hated by my mother. And um, I just lived, like I said, for the fact that I would be a sacrifice for my siblings. And, um, and so when the world said, you're called us in a cult, and the world thought that I, that half of my siblings were my own, oh, my own kids. And, um, there was always these accusations I wanted to hide even more, which kind of like, yeah, I just didn't want to be seen by the world either because of the way that I knew the world thought of us. Mm -hmm. Your dad died in prison in 2008, so 14 years ago. Do you remember where you were when you first heard of his passing? Oh, yeah. So I had reached a point where, and it's funny you asked that question about, did I still love my father afterwards? And the, the, the truth would be yes, because, um, and I was embarrassed of the fact that I loved him, to be honest with you. <laughs> uh, but part of my love for him, I don't know how much it, love was in it, I think it had a lot to do with guilt or somehow my heart hung, being hung on the fact that if he would only say he was sorry, somehow it would help just prove how wrong he is. I needed that. And um, so I knew that I could manipulate my father a lot or if I could just talk to him again. Possibly I could manipulate. This is really embarrassing to say. I guess it is, but, uh, what, 2008 was five, six, seven, eight. That's only three years after I escaped my father, right? So I'm still so trying to figure out life. And I'm, it's only three, oh, five, six, seven, eight. That's crazy. Uh, so then I also had the, the, the thing hanging over my neck that, he said so many times to me, don't you leave me or I'll die. And so I'm thinking he's dying already. 
and I know why he's dying. Because I left him. And somehow, if I could just talk him into repenting and changing and living, because I knew he wasn't really wanting to live. I knew he probably did. He died on purpose. That's how I feel. Okay. Um, I know he had medical reasons and all, but he could have done. It. Yeah, how do I put it? So I had told the judge that I never would want to see him again. And then, I think it was a year later? Hmm. Anyways, maybe not even. I'm in my little house with my husband, and I told Matthew, my husband, I, I want to go see my father, because I heard he wasn't going to live like he was on his deathbed. And I was wondering if there was some sort of way that I could get a a way to go in and see him. I just want to talk to him. Mm -hmm. And my husband was very supportive if that's what I felt like I needed to do. He was like, sure, we can figure something out. And so I asked God that night that he would, um, if I was supposed to go see my father, that he would please open the door and help me be able to go see him before he dies. And down deep, what I wanted to do was really talk him into repenting. And so the next morning, my brothers and my mother, he was in the hospital, actually, I think. And my mother and my brothers had been there or were there. I just remember my husband was on the phone with somebody and, and I was waiting for him to get off the phone. And I sat down beside him on the couch and I told him, I was, I was getting ready to say, Matthew, can we go? I, I just know we don't have long. Please, can we go? And uh, he gets off the phone and he goes, just a second. And the phone rang again. So he answers the phone and it was my brother, David. And he told my father, he told my husband that my father had died. And at that moment, I knew that God had set me free. Like, I even said this to God. I said, oh, I didn't mean that fast. Like, you didn't have to like, <laughs> <laughs> like, wait. Then I was almost sorry I actually prayed that prayer because I'd actually prayed that if I was supposed to see him, that that door would be open. But instead, he died that night. And so I had a, there was a real, I had a real free, I felt really free. And um, I was okay with what had happened because I had prayed that prayer. When was the last time you visited his grave? Actually... <laughs> the last time um, was just in uh, a month ago when CBN came up to do a um, from Nashville to do an interview of me but it had been it hadn't been it's the first time I've gone out there since um, uh, I have it in my book here hang on I'm gonna look at my in my book out of the wilderness and where I went out to my father's grave for the first time by myself and knelt there and uh, forgave him. That was 2015. So it's the first time since 2015. And I took my daughter with me. And we went first. We went out there and um, together. 
And it was interesting because I looked at her, my 13-year-old daughter, Esther. And I said something like, something about how, I, how I'm sorry that, sorry for you. Or oh, what would I, what did I say? Anyways, what I remember was her response. She's like, no, mama, this is really, this is really a blessing. I really love being here right now. I, I just so appreciate coming here with you. And I thought, wow, like she's able to go there without any of the past between, mm -hmm. you know, and here I am like thinking, oh, this is like, I'm sorry that you have a grandpa on the ground right here. That's, um, she was just rejoicing over who I was as her mom and that. Um, she got to visit that moment with me and it was just like a special moment for her, I think. Yeah. And so this is a different time than the one you're looking for right now in the book. Yeah. The one I'm talking about in the book, I, I have it right here. I could actually read the little part of going to the grave if you want me to. Yeah, that'd be great. All right. I'll start right here. By Father's Day in 2015, I faced the wrongs of my past more profoundly than ever before. I also invited Jesus into the darkest parts of my heart. The healing process felt like I was climbing a mountain. There were times when my muscles would grow weary, leaving me discouraged and wondering how I could take any more. But with the faithful love of my Heavenly Father and the wisdom of my counselor, Dr. Larry Severson, I was ready to reach what I felt like the summit. I wanted to express heartfelt forgiveness to my father. It was time to find a new level of healing, time for me to take forgiveness farther, time to visit my father's grave for the first time since his burial. Without hesitation, I got in the car for the short drive to the cemetery in Wasilla with my Bible and a yellow rose. On the longest day of the year in 2015, on Father's Day, I stood before a gray headstone with Papa's full name inscribed on the marble, along with the year he lived, from 1941 to 2008. I knew he was no longer there, but I wanted to talk to him as though he was still alive, because I had feelings and emotions ready to express. I knelt on the ground on top of my father's grave. For a moment, I stared at the headstone as my thoughts raced to remember my father. At first, my mind went numb, but since I had done so much work to open up and allow my heart to feel pain again, everything hit me at once. I wept out loud like I had never wept before, and then a torrent of thoughts released like a flood. Papa. I came today because I wish to express my forgiveness for all my losses as your daughter. I can only hope that before you left this earth, you cried out to God and accepted his forgiveness. At times I have looked out my kitchen window and the tears just fell as I pondered the unmet longings I had as your daughter. At one point I was a tender rose blooming up beside you as one time I had deep longings as your little girl to feel safe with you. I needed you to be safe 
and teach me boundaries that would give me stability throughout my tender years. I was a normal, sensitive girl who needed a wall of protection, a fortress around me. I wanted that fortress to be you. I needed you to be fun, Daddy, who did not suddenly change from happy to mad. Your anger filled my soul with so much fear, fear of you, fear of others, fear of myself, fear of men, and a wrong fear of God. I wanted so badly to run and hide from your wrathful presence, but inside I froze. I was dead on the inside, while on the outside I performed what I knew as the good girl. I craved your gentleness and safe touch, but every time you touched me, something happened. I felt an obligation to give to you what you demanded of me. What I was reaching for became the very tool used against my needy heart. I needed you, Papa. I needed you. I needed you to make me safe. Show me love. Forever be my father. To model to me what a good man should be. I needed you to be there on my wedding day. Oh, if only I could have put my pure arm into yours as a daddy's girl walking up the aisle for you to give me away. Why? Why? Oh, Papa, why? How could you? This has been the cry of your girl's heart for many tormenting years. My heart breaks to realize that you could not give what you did not have. You did not have purity to give, therefore you lived in torment of sin. You could not accept God's unconditional love for you, therefore you did not have love to give. You gave torment because you lived in torment. Though I grieve the loss of my earthly dad today, I can tell you that my Heavenly Father is enough. What you could not give me, my Father in Heaven, has filled me up. Today, I leave a gift for you. It is the most profound gift a daughter can give to her, an earthly father who has greatly abused her. I give you my deepest heart of forgiveness. I forgive you, Papa. Do you deserve it? No, but none of us do. That makes you no different than any of anyone else. Today, I lay a yellow rose on your grave as a token of my forgiveness. The thorns on the stem express the years of pain and hardship. The petals open up to God and show His amazing grace and reminds me that He has never forsaken me. I stopped and opened my Bible to read Psalms 23. The Lord is my shepherd. I lack nothing. He makes me lay down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He refreshes my soul. It started raining, which felt like God was crying with me. Even though the clouds were dark and the rain fell, I felt free and clean inside. I walked down the path back to my car, looking to the cloudy heavens, knowing that God was not a God of evil and destruction, but a God of restoration. A warm sense of forgiveness filled my soul and I knew I was truly free from that evil past with Papa Pilgrim. After everything he had taken from me, that was something he could not touch.
Thank you for that, Alicia. Yeah. So we started this conversation by talking about how you understand motherhood. You have two kids now, a boy and a girl. What kind of parent do you strive to be? I strive to be a parent who doesn't try to save my children from pain. But I'm willing to walk in pain with them. And any trial that they may walk or face or hardship throughout the day, whether it's being in the hospital with my son for a month and not knowing whether he was going to live or come back to us, or, you know, letting my daughter ride her motorcycle down the mountain or around the corner, <laughs> not worrying yeah. the life out of me that she's going to get hurt or something. Um, someone once told me, Alicia, but you can't save your kids from pain, but you can walk with them in the pain. And so I feel like in the end, what I want to see is that no matter where they are in this world, they'll know I have unconditional love for them and they can talk to me about anything <laughs> and they won't be condemned, but loved. Mm -hmm. So to be fully known and fully loved and safe. You know, that does it for my questions. I want to thank you for sharing your story with me and I'm so sorry you went through all of that, but I'm so happy you're in such a better place right now. Thanks, Cody. Yeah, you asked some amazing questions. Do you have anything else you'd like to add? I think I'm good. Yeah. You can support this podcast at patreon.com slash crude magazine. You can also support this podcast with a one-time payment at buymeacoffee.com slash crude magazine. Crude Conversations is written, hosted, and produced by me, Cody Liska, for Crude Magazine. Music was produced by Alcoda Beats. 